Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. All right. So welcome again, everyone. And our, our topic uh, for today is the Four Noble Truths. And it's at the beginning of the year, it's a really good time to um, visit the Four Noble Truths. It's um, the first teaching of the Buddha, or so they say, and a core teaching in the Theravada tradition. And that's what I generally teach from. So um, this sermon was given, in case you're interested, 2,551 years ago, we think, in Benares, to five people. And here we are 2,551 years later, and it's given to, what, millions, maybe billions. Um, so very interesting. And we call the Buddha um, the great scientist of the mind from this teaching. And um, the story goes that he, he, he sat down under the Bodhi tree and he wasn't going to get up till he got enlightened. He got enlightened and then gave this sermon. So um, I'm going to read you a little bit so you can get a flavor of the teaching from his words, or the words we think he said. So you can close your eyes for a moment and just take in what he's saying here. Now this bhikkhus, bhikkhus would be seekers. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates, which include form and all phenomenon, are subject to clinging and their suffering. So you can open your eyes now. I'll stop here. Well, we all know that um, there's suffering in birth, aging, illness, and death. That's pretty clear. You don't need a PhD for that, right? But then we go down a little bit. Here's what's more <clears throat> subtle. And you can translate suffering as dukkha in Pali, but it's also stress or dissatisfaction. And he says, um, union with what is displeasing is suffering. What we don't like, there's some stress going on. And sometimes we're not fully cognizant or aware of it or mindful of it because we're kind of pushing it away or resisting in some form. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. When we're separated from what we want, and, we're, and that happens a lot, um, not to get what you want is suffering. Even to get what you want is suffering, right? And um, all the forms, all the objects of the senses that dance before us, when we're clinging to them and grasping, they're suffering. So this is really um, a very alive teaching that 
can be at the core of your mindfulness practice that could be lived daily. It's not so much a truth, but a task. It's an ongoing process. And what I find so fascinating, if any of you have visited 12-step programs, you'll see in the steps this, um, this language of letting go, of turning things over, of non-grasping, and he's talking about that here. So I had to laugh because um, the craving and the clinging is happening. It's happening all the time isn't it? It's just a wheel. It's constant, constant, constant. And um, that's why they, the first teaching is called setting in motion the wheel, the wheel of wanting. And um, so, so the first part of the noble truth is the truth of our suffering, and that's um, diagnosing the problem. There's some truth in the way we suffer and the way we stress. And then the second noble truth is addressing the truth of the cause of suffering. What's the underlying cause of this dis-ease that we have? And the third noble truth is about the end of suffering. It's the prescription. Well, here's the medicine that you would take, the Buddha is saying. And the fourth is the end of suffering. This is what happens when you take the treatment, right? The cessation, it ends. Um, so, so knowing that life is not going to go according to your wishes and plans. Does anybody believe life is going to go to your wishes and plans? <laughs> anybody here still? <laughs> okay. Um, but part of us does. Part of us clings to that. I do. All right? And, um, but it's not a reliable path to happiness, is what he's saying. And, and sure enough, it happens all the time. I love this teaching, and I've been just at the beginning of the year, that's kind of when I'll go back to this teaching and really start to read the people I like to read who write about it and speak about it and contemplate. And it just starts to sink in and it gets deeper and deeper and I start to feel some real aliveness about it. Sometimes I'll feel a deadness about it too. But this aliveness sets in. So this morning I woke up and I was so excited to come and share the teaching with all of you. So I got up super early and I thought to myself, oh great, let me drive here an hour early and I'll get to the coffee shop and I'll get this nice cup of Java, this good brew, I'll sit quietly in the coffee house and contemplate the teachings and just, you know, savor the coffee, the teachings all alone in the quiet and read what Ajahn Sumedho said and Philip Moffat and Carol Wilson, the teachers I like to look at. And I get to the coffee shop and I get this beautiful cup of joe, you know, I'm sitting there and there's a nice cushy seat in the window and I sit down, I take out my materials and I'm like, oh, this is great, I just sit here quietly. And this woman walks in with her partner and they proceed to sit down next to me and have a fight. <laughs> and um, loud one, and I thought, this 
is dukkha, right? This is suffering. I have an idea in my mind, house builder. I, you know, you have a plan. And guess what? Right? So. So. So let's. let's. (laughs) And then, you know, you grasp and cling. Did you, did I grasp and cling at that moment? Hell yeah. (laughs) Yes. And that's why this teaching is alive. This is why it's an alive teaching, because it's alive in us. And it's never one that we're going to fully, well, you may get enlightened. And as we say here in Long Beach, if you do, please let us know. <laughs> right? But most of us, this is a very gradual process, and we'll, we're going to stumble a lot. And sure enough, you know, I felt myself grasping at the situation in the coffee house and clinging to my idea of, of a great morning, you know. Um, and here we go again. The wheel is in motion. That's what makes it alive. Not that I'm perfect with it. It's not a prescription for perfection. We are never going to be perfect with grasping and clinging in our lives. It's always going to be evident in some form. So it's not about getting perfect with it. It's about, um, Ajahn Sumido says, it's about using this mindfulness to transcend the condition of your mind seeing through your illusion and your delusion, seeing through the greed that we have and the um, discontent, the hatred, and the deluded way we think. And when we pierce that, like, um, like you know, a bubble that you pierce, right? When you pe- or a balloon that you pierce, there's freedom. And there's a sukha, a happiness. And the Four Noble Truths is not just about suffering or stress. It's also about the conditions for happiness and freedom, ease, peace, well-being. So every time you get that little bubble in there that bursts, there's this this relaxation, this peace, this deeper knowing. And believe it or not, you are all doing it. Everyone in here is doing it. We're not always so aware of it. So what we're, we're, what we're pointing to is using our mindfulness to know and transcend the nature of this wheel we call our mind. Yeah? And um, Ajahn Sumedho believes one of his teachings is to reflect on the noble truths for a year. Make it practical, not a theory. Hold on to it for a year. So you got to get that journal, put the Four Noble Truths in, and, and keep reflecting back on it. And he says, the good news is that something so ordinary, the stress and dissatisfaction of just being alive, there is always some stress. It could be a tax bill. It could be a pipe broke in your house. It could be someone's ill. And you've just got this back pain. There isn't a day that goes by where there isn't a dissatisfaction, small or big. It's always there. And that this is a path that leads you to awakening. It's not just an irk. You know, it's not just, oh, why is it there? It's a path in of itself. 
So that's what's exciting about Four Noble Truths. It can take you on a path, a full journey. And the first part is being present to the dukkha. We're used to, and we talk about this a lot, we're used to running away, blaming, reacting, going into anxiety, fear, uh, the muscle tension, you could feel it in your muscular. Um, so we're using the mindfulness here to be with it, not necessarily to solve it, but to pause, experience, and not turn away from it. And to see it as a condition that isn't so personal. As we like to say, it's your ticket for being alive. And the conditions of the dukkha are um, varied, depending upon who and where we are. They're varied. The suffering is varied, but we are all suffering, every human being on the planet. And when we can take this big lens, it's not so personal. It's a form of suffering that is contingent upon existing, and that gives us a wider lens to view ourselves and the world. So Ajahn Sumedho says, in the middle of the storm, if you can observe it, that mindfulness becomes indestructible and you can learn to trust it and cultivate it through the difficult times, through the storm. And some of you have come up to me when you've been in a storm and the mindfulness was present and, and have talked to me about how that helped steer that ship right helped you cope and I've experienced that myself so um, so the first part is being <coughs> present to dukkha and knowing it in your as it arises in your body and in your mind and in your thought and in your relationships knowing it well I get much more cloudy with dukkha sometimes in relationally you know, my expectation of others, how I want them to be in the moment, um, the control that I want to have over them. You know, you can really see dukkha there. But you could see dukkha everywhere. We're all having some part of dukkha with our bodies right now, right? Okay. So knowing it and holding it in a mindful way and seeing it through a wider lens, the dukkha of life. And then the next part has to do with my favorite Pali word, which is craving, tanha. I love that word, tanha. It sounds like what it is. <laughs> no. And the Buddha teaches when we cling and identify, we, we suffer, right? Clinging, identification, suffering. And when we believe that our happiness depends on getting it, whatever the it is, your mind can be in prison. You get imprisoned by it, depending upon the intensity of that belief. I don't know about you, but I've had a few prison sentences in my life. I've served some time <laughs> in, in wanting what I want. Yeah. So, um, and it can be, again, a person 
an object, a thought. Um, and it's not that the craving and the tanha, we get confused here. It's not that you can't enjoy good things through your senses, because one of the cravings comes from your sense door. That great cup of coffee, that wonderful ice cream, the great meal, a good massage, touch, our sexuality, um, wanting a great conversation, a nice dinner, wanting a hug. There's nothing unwholesome about that or wrong. And we can enjoy it and appreciate it and have gratitude. And that's mindfulness too. Appreciating and savoring and being with the pleasant. Um, it's when we're grasping and clinging and making an identity out of it that um, we start to suffer. Right? So, uh, so that's one form of grasping and clinging is the sense objects and the sense door. Um, and you get those moments. We, at home we have, um, we've had for like almost 20 years this tree in the center of the patio and every winter it sheds these beautiful um, little tangerine mandarin oranges or something like this and we've we do nothing to it no water no fertilizer absolutely nothing and here it is november december and we get this beautiful fruit and it's so pretty and um one year after 18 years it died it was over it ceased right and i could feel my craving for it yeah in a in just a this craving this for for something that isn't there anymore this wanting this thing but life teaches us it's all unstable and impermanent it's going to come and go come and go we get we get taught this all the time so um so one is the craving of the senses what we want the other it gets more subtle the other is um the craving and the grasping for becoming. And here's where uh, the dukkha and the American dream go together, right? I think from childhood, and some of us have raised our children like this, and we've been raised like this, um, you have to be something. You know, you have to get something, you have to attain something. And um, this is not unwholesome. It's good to do good things and, and um, aspire. But when we believe we have to have an identity that we're not and we're grasping and clinging, we're not happy because we don't, we're not that person. We have this idealized version of ourselves and the society supports that. We have to look a certain way and have a certain amount of money and have a certain amount of status and a certain amount of things, right? or just be a certain way, this becoming, this bhava, that there can be a lot of suffering in that. A lot of suffering in that. Even on the path, you want to be a good Buddhist, a good meditator, a kinder person. You want to do metta for everyone. You don't want to have ill will. This could be a grasping and a clinging and illusion delusion. You know, the striving to be better in itself 
is a grasping. It creates tension and suffering. I want to be more. So, so you were using this mindfulness to get underneath this fantasy of ourselves, this house building. And my, this is my favorite line from the Buddha. Um, house builder, you have been seen. You have been seen. These fantasies we build on who we think we should be and who we think we are. I have a very, um, this story that comes, one example of this. Uh, many years ago, I, I uh, many, many years ago, I was, um, had this friend, and we were very close, very, very close, very close, and we shared very deeply. And I had an image of my mind, in my mind, of what I was, who I was in the relationship. And one day, this person said something and just shattered it. Just knocked, it was like if I, if, like, if it was like a statue smashing. Just, and, and this person said it in such a way that I, I could, something arose in me where I could see the fantasy that I built of who I thought I was in my head. And it was, um, it was excruciating. It was just like an arrow to the heart. It was like, whoosh. and then it was an amazing opening. It was like that shattering of the image, and it had a shock value to it. And um, and I actually had a physical reaction. I cried for hours. Really sobbed, like there was this deep sob. And then there was just this unbelievable opening, this shedding of the house. The house felt for that time. The house felt. It was a deep insight. The house just smashed. And there was so much beautiful freedom on the other side of that, but great freedom. Oh, beyond words. But this is what the teachings are about house builder you have been seen the structure false so it's not just mindfulness to be happy and mindfulness to be peaceful it's not just mindfulness as a new thing you know like a new breakfast cereal <laughs> right it's it's really the challenge is that everything you believed about yourself to be true goes for a deeper knowing, a deeper peace. And even that awareness is, unfortunately, impermanent. You know, uh, these awarenesses come and go, but they are deeply meaningful and they change everything. Game changer. So the other way we cling is a very interesting way. It's called non-becoming, when you're aversive to life. 
You know that feeling on Monday morning, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. I don't want to get dressed. You know, I don't like anything. I don't. That's a form of clinging too, to non-becoming. And Freud talked about it as a death wish. I just don't want to be here. I don't want to be seen. I don't, I don't want you to engage. Right? It's also a craving and a clinging. So the Buddha also talks about the word um, cessation. Now that should be my favorite word, but tanha I can relate to a little more than cessation. Right? Cessation is nibbana. And what it referred to um, in the early days was um, when people would cook their rice on the fire, and the rice has to cool down before you can eat it. If it's too hot, you can't eat it. So nibbana really means the cooling down when the rice cools. So when the craving cools, we experience nibbana. Now there's a nibbana with a big N, and there's a nibbana with a little end, and here's the good news for us. And this is what the task of the Four Noble Truths is. There are a lot of times in your life where you just let go. You had a craving, you had an idea, you had a sense of self, and you dropped it. You just dropped it. And you didn't suffer. You got calm and peaceful about it. Could be a relationship, right? You wanted something for somebody and you're trying to get them to be a certain way and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying and then you go, oh, I'm going to let go. It's not working. And then there's a peace there. There's this calm and ease. You're trying to change a situation in your life and you're trying every which way um, and something in you just lets go and is with what's happening without resisting or fighting. You're with it. That's Nibbana. And um, there's a teacher, I don't remember his name, but talks about everyday Nibbana, that we get little tastes all the time. And so the task is to be mindful when that happens, to know that it's happening, and to cultivate it, to cultivate the letting go, to cultivate the ending, the cessation of that grasping, to practice it. Now, I, I was reading um, Thich Nhat Hanh's earlier memoir, and um, so this man had an amazingly difficult life. I don't have to tell you, the war. But he writes about the part that I recall that I re- want to talk about in relation to Nibbana the cooling and the letting go. Um, He's a young monk, and apparently he was teaching Buddhism in a more radical way or a modern way, and he was trying to get into the temples of Vietnam and promote his way of teaching. Different style, and it was rejected. He was rejected. I don't know if people know that. It was like, go away, Thich Nhat Hanh. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And he really got kind of tossed about in Vietnam. And um, so then he decides to create a monastery 
in a beautiful forest. He found this beautiful forest and they really had to scrounge to build. They had nothing and they lived on nothing and they built this beautiful spiritual community in the middle of this forest only to have that destroyed by many factors, political um, and economic, very difficult and harsh lifestyle. So the reason why I bring that up here about Nibbana and cooling is when you read Thich Nhat Hanh's words, it's not that he was void of emotion and grief, that he didn't feel sad or disappointed or hurt or just um, wanting what wasn't there for him or craving. He, he writes, and you can read in his writings, all the emotions were there. His, was his understanding. It was the lens at which he viewed all this that um, was the path that he knew he had to let go. He knew he couldn't get what he wanted. He knew that this dukkha was part of the path. And he kept his practice going. He was free even though the conditions weren't free. And that's why we love to read Thich Nhat Hanh, right? He's in that moment. So it doesn't mean that you have to repress and throw away all your grief or your sadness or your emotion. And I also, when I'm reading his story, I could see the clinging. In, it's like clinging doesn't go away like that. Sometimes we're grasping for days and weeks and months. Did anybody have a situation like that where you really grasped? It takes a while. So we have to really cultivate a compassion with our um, working with these four noble truths. So um, we can see this as life practice. To work with letting go whenever grasping has arisen. We can invite cessation into a moment. You can invite it in like a friend. I welcome you, cessation. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Um, and no matter how brief it is, it's still important to note, even if the next moment you're grasping again. So I'm going to end. Um, but I want to talk, before I end, a little bit about happiness. Because happiness is part of a Four Noble Truths teaching. There are three kinds of happiness we can have in our lives. One is the happiness of sense pleasures, where you're getting what you want. It's a great sunset. You've had a great meal. You've had a good conversation. You had a great hug. It's great to have that dog or cat that just delights you, right? Your comfy bed. There's nothing wrong with that. It's happiness. And it's good to be mindful and savor that and feel gratitude for what we have. And we all have a lot of that. We're real lucky. So that's one form of happiness. Nothing wrong with it, right? There's nothing unsavory about it. And the second form of happiness is... A happiness that arises out of 
when you're not getting what you want and the conditions are not right, but your mind is not grasping or clinging and you're with what is in a peaceful way. A common is, hey, this is not what I wanted, but I'm here with it. I'm mindfully present and I accept what is. I'm in acceptance. I'm not resisting. I'm not fighting. I'm not building a story about it, this image of myself. It's, I'm with it. I'm abiding with it. That's a happiness, isn't it? That's a peace. That's an important kind of happiness to have because conditions don't always go so good, right? And then there's even a third one, which is the conditions aren't right and your mind isn't even right. And you're still surrendered on some level and with it. I know, I just saw the faces go, what? <laughs> yeah, so I want to talk about that, and then we'll end and have some small dialogue, which is to say, let's go back, that the Buddha taught this after he sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree for a while and got enlightened. This would be the mysterious part, the meditation part, that when the mind gets so still, and it stops popping all these ideas and all these concepts and names and naming things. And, and, and that stops, as it can in meditation, eyes closed or eyes open, it can cease cessation. The mind isn't creating a world anymore. It's not creating a you. And it's not creating, um, through the sense doors, all that. This big show, it's just ceased. It's empty. We call that emptiness. <coughs> right? We call that emptiness. The mind is, it's empty. It's empty of all concepts, ideas, and form. Empty. Right? That's that third happiness. And sometimes you get a taste of that in your practice. That's why we really try to have you come together a lot and meditate a lot and contemplate a lot because we know we're trying to set the conditions for freedom. We're trying to give you these conditions for freedom. We're trying to create a space for it in life. And so that would be the third form of happiness. When it all ceases, cessation. And once in a while, we get a taste of that, too. Comes and goes. And if you have one taste, you're hooked. It's not the same. Not the same. One taste. New game. So I invite you to travel the path of the Four Noble Truths for 2019. To look, take a journal, and see Dukkha. Right? Notice Dukkha. Notice Tanha. Notice Nibbana. And find the sukha, the joy. 
so we'll stop right here. So, so who would like to volunteer to share with the group another fun part? <laughs> yes? Well, I, I'm not suffering now, but I'm sure when the Super Bowl happens, if <laughs> <laughs> don't do well, I'm going to suffer. <laughs> I don't know why I'm with these guys. I don't know these guys. <laughs> the L.A. team, they just got here. You know, sometimes they play well, sometimes they play horribly. Uh, but my mind wants to attach to a team while I'm watching the game, and I'm watching myself you know, just root for excellence, you know? Okay, good play. Yes, they made a good play. Yes, they made a good play. But no, I got a root for a team. So there's going to be some suffering. <laughs> and it really speaks to um, the fact that the brain that we have is a tribal brain. And so you could see the roots of suffering in our conditioning. I think the, the uh, football... Thing, you could see the tribe. I, I want to belong to that tribe and I want my tribe to win. Mm -hmm. So, interesting. Yeah, thank you. Who else? Yes? Um, I just want to thank you. And it was uh, good to hear the Four Noble Truths the way you, you uh, presented them. Mm -hmm. It was really helpful. And um, so, I, oh, I wanted to say I thought of, uh, I didn't say this talking but yesterday I, I go to my uh, grandkids baseball games and, and basketball games and yesterday I was at a basketball game and I'm of course rooting for my grandson and I want them to win and I was really upset because it was 26 to 4 and <laughs> it wasn't that team but as I was watching I was thinking all of us I mean actually the kids did great all of them did great. they're all the same age you're not nine years old or so and I was thinking you know everybody else here wants the same thing. We all want the same thing, yet we're rooting for that one thing. And so I thought, oh, I can I can clap for these people's kids too. Because <laughs> we all want them to be, you know, have a good game. So anyway, I thought that was like a cool insight. I think so. <laughs> I agree. That is a cool insight. It's yeah, a good one. You notice how on that insight, it's like the bubble of an illusion gets popped too. Right? It's not just me, mine, it's we. That's a good insight. It's an important insight. Who else? <clears throat> One more. Yes? I, I, I oh. sure. Two more. I just have a question, actually. Uh, you yeah. mentioned 12-step uh, work in, uh, in your dialogue. And, and I, I, you know, I... I, I'm in 12-step work, and I meet with my sponsor and, and a group of men uh, once a month that, that he sponsors. And, and, and he read, he, he brought something to the group, which he does every month, that uh, was was uh, from Buddhist teaching. And I uh, was saying, you know, the, to my mind, Buddhist teaching is the original 12-step work, you know, the eight and the four. So it's like the original old 12-step work. And now we find ourselves, you know, with... Overeaters Anonymous, and they're all 12-step programs, but, you know, they mushroom them. I was wondering, do you have any insights as to literature or teachings that incorporate yeah. more of the Buddhist teaching in the more modern 12-step Bill Wilson? Uh, Kevin Griffin has a couple of books on addiction, 12 steps, 
and Buddhist teachings. So does Noah Levine. Yep. Dharma punks. Dharma punks. Um, I think those are the two. I have some of them. If you remind me, I'll try to bring it. Um, but they're good. They're really great. That'd be fine. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Who's, who are they again? Uh, Noah Levine and Kevin Griffin. Kevin Griffin. Those are the two that come to mind. I'll remember the first one. You're right. So which was the first one? Noah Levine. Noah Levine. Noah Levine. Steve Levine. Yeah. Yeah. And read Kevin Griffin's books, and you can catch him on Dharma Seed, too. Lots of good. He goes through all the steps. Okay. Margaret. Flunabana. What? Flunabana. Oh, gosh, yes. I was talking to Jane about uh, the process of having the flu come to visit. Mm -hmm. And uh, at first being in denial, and then just realizing, like, this is how it is. You're sick. Yeah. Um, and this is all you need to be doing right now. Mm. So, and even though I wouldn't say true, the flu is Nibbana. However, <laughs> when you can just realize, like, this is how it is. And so what I need to be doing right now is throwing up. <laughs> and then meditating in between throwing up. <laughs> It actually makes it a more peaceful process. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying that. Yeah. It's still not like I'd be like, oh, please, let me do that again. But it is going to happen again. Yeah. So yeah. to just go through that place of acceptance of like, this is where I am right now. And you knew it was impermanent. Yeah. True. Yeah, <laughs> right. But the thing, not to be negative, but the thing we need to remember with impermanence is impermanence isn't a guarantee that things are going to get better. True. It's a guarantee that True. things change. will change. change. True. So that's an important thing to remember. There's not a promise. Oh. Right. I mean, I, it did get better. I'm sitting here and hurling on the back of Jane's shirt. It's awesome of me. It changes bi-directional. Yeah, but... Like, I'm not doing anything bi-directional to any of you right now. So, yeah, flu, flu nibbana. That's good. Yeah, cessation, right? When you can lay in bed and just forget it. <laughs> you know, just like, okay, I got, I'm staying here. Yeah. Yes. No, I was just going to piggyback on hers because I too got the flu and bronchitis at the same time. So I was down on the couch and I hardly ever get sick. And um, and so, yeah, at first there was the resistance, you know, and I had fear because I, I thought, oh my God, is this pneumonia? Because I had that once in my life and I never want it again. So once I took myself to the emergency or the whatever emergency room thing, and I found out I was good as far as that, but had this, I could go home and I tell you what, I, there was this deep joy in this illness of not being, that I could just let go and relax, like deeply, you know. And then I had friends like Elaine and some other people come and bring me soup and I felt so loved and cared for and I just felt like, Remembering my dad coming home when I was sick and making tomato soup for me. Mm -hmm. It was just like, it was this really sweet, bitter thing. Uh -huh. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so you're bringing up a really important point is when we let go and relax into the conditions even when the conditions are not ideal, there's a sukha, there's a sweetness and a happiness in the middle of it not being the way you want. Yes. This is that second one. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, a friend of mine I was talking with about a couple of different re relationship challenges with a couple of 
weeks ago, or about a week ago, suggested that I um, read One Year to Live. Just something that we've talked about here, and for me it's easier to listen to it, and I just wanted to say it kind of connects with what we're doing here today as well. I mean, just that whole consciousness of, you know, being the impermanence of our lives and what we can do to, you know, things that we can do to um, make things clear. It's called One Year to Live? Yeah, it's uh, Stephen Levine's. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know um, Casey, Casey's talked about it a few times, I think. Anyway, just to put it out there. Awesome. Thank you. All right. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.